Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, More Human, we talk with Carrie Caston, Associate Professor of Spanish at Fordham University, who shares her experiences teaching and parenting during the past pandemic year. Thanks for being with us, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're teaching this semester and how it's going? So I'm teaching community-engaged learning class. It's called Spanish Community-Engaged Learning. So it's been kind of a challenge to figure out how to do community-engaged learning. But it's been more seamless than uh, I would have thought. I think all of those students in that class this semester are in New York City. And I think we're going to get together for a walking tour uh, during um, that first week in May. So it'll be like a nice end to like a whole lot of online teaching. Like here we are, we're real people. Let's walk through a neighborhood together um, and have a conversation and share space. So it'll be exciting. What would you ordinarily do? And then how have you adapted it in this context? So I made some mistakes like all of us did in the fall. And I kind of reached out to too many people and tried to make too many people happy. I was, uh, I had 18 students. Normally I have 18 students enrolled and it drops down to 14. Those, the community engaged learning classes are capped at 18. And it normally drops down when students realize the commitment. Maybe they're not committed or maybe they just don't have time that particular semester. And so I was really nervous in the fall that I wouldn't have enough placements because it was hard for me to gauge who wanted virtual placements, who wanted in-person placements. And I kind of tried to offer them everything. So I think I worked with four or five different different organizations in the community. And that was really hard. And some of them were new to me. And that was hard. And so this semester, I kind of did the opposite. And I'm just working with two different organizations. And they're both organizations that I've worked with before. One's in Washington Heights and one is in the Bronx. And so it's kind of, it, those classes typically have a mixture of students from Lincoln Center and, and Rose Hill. And so it, it helps me to kind of talk to both populations at once, talk about Spanish speaking communities in the Bronx, Spanish speaking communities in Manhattan. One thing I did was invite the executive directors of both of those organizations into class. We did, we dedicated a whole day for each of one for one organization and one for another organization. Wow. And so it was a way to have the students who are working with the opposite organization get to know things about the other organization. It was a way to kind of make it more intimate, to bridge the gap. And I think it's something I'll do in the future. It kind of brought us together more as a community. Other things that I've done, I think a lot of us have done, I've tried to just be more visual in my teaching. And I went from using Google Docs in the fall where, cause you know, it's a language class. So you're constantly having to produce language and that's what they're being, that's what I'm trying to help them learn how to produce it and correct each other. And that's really hard to do on Zoom with the delays and Sometimes people don't have their camera on. And so we, uh, in the fall, we used Google Docs. And now I just use Google Slides. And it's just like a, it's like a constant blackboard. For, but I don't have to toggle between things. I have instructions on there, like in group work, what you're going to do. My, then I'm also teaching an upper level novel course, a Spanish novel course. And I, well, one thing I did was I just removed theory. I was like, this is not a semester to talk theory. We're just going to talk novels We're gonna, and, and film. We're going to talk narrative. I made the focus of the narrative be home, houses, home, and like belonging, because we're all spending so much more time in our homes. And so we spent the begin like the first day of class, we talked about that. Like, what is that? How has our relationship to our home changed? And so really the class 
is like a way to look at Spanish culture through the 20th and 21st century and how it's changed. But by using home as like an anchor, it's it's an interesting way to spur discussion. It also like my secret agenda is that I really wanted to, I've never taught the 2008 housing bubble in Spain and I want to do that. And I wanted to figure out how to do that. And it's also connected to activism. There were a lot of, act, and, and so it connects me to the community engaged learning stuff. So that's what we're ending with. We're ending with a graphic novel and a musical, a film musical about the no. 2008 housing bubble in Spain, which was worse than it was here. Anne and I have been doing these professional, you know, faculty development workshops, and we've been struggling with making changes to the content and approach of teaching. Instructors feeling a lot of pressure on academic rigor and maintaining standards. So can you talk a little bit about that choice and how you think it's changed what the class has traditionally or historically been? Part of it was like recognizing my limitations. Right. I always try to teach things that are new to me and that I want to learn. Fitting in theory that I wanted to read and figure out how to teach was hard for me this semester. I have limitations that I wouldn't normally have on my time. It all it forced me in some ways to own some of the teaching that I would have put off on them because so there's there's kind of three things that happen. We read narrative and talk about what's going on in the narrative, but I have to contextualize it. And so I've often assigned them like his brief history readings. And I just took that off the table and I said, I'm gonna just teach them history. And so I just became responsible and I didn't have them read about it. I just taught them and I showed them some pictures and we talked about what, and we watched some videos of like funny rock concerts from the eighties. And, and then that was it and it was done. And I'm sure it'll come back to haunt me as they write their final papers and maybe need a little more context and I'll have to provide that or they'll have to do that on their own. But I didn't make them responsible for that. But I, I think for me, it was more important that we have interesting, fun things to talk about in this bizarre medium than for them to feel, and they're learning things, right? They manage to read the novels every week from what I can tell, but I'm not so sure I care that they understood a whole lot about narratology. Do you think that's a change that will persist in some form when things return to like a post-COVID instruction? Maybe, yeah. I've always been pretty text-driven. I think that maybe when we go back to being in person, I'll need some more of that structure, right? But the truth of the matter is like some of the things that have put limitations on our lives are there all the time, right? Students always have lots of jobs or some students do. Some students are always, I just got an email from a student who said she just doesn't have time to fix her computer. And she's really sorry because she's working a bunch of jobs because her parents both have lost their jobs in the pandemic. And she's overseeing her siblings who were in online secondary school. And so like stuff persists, people have to pick up their siblings. And so I think like maybe, hopefully this has made us more human about that. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on in your house and how you've managed and maybe the phases that you've gone through with your kids? What I remember about that time was just the crazy anxiety, right? And like having to put that anxiety in a box to deal with students who were experiencing that same emotion. But I remember like, taking beautiful hikes through the woods and just not being able to see anything. Like I was out there because my kids needed to do something physical and that they needed to be healthy. But I just remember being so in my head and so not knowing what, um, what was going on and feeling so disconnected from people and space and my space. And, and I was really lucky I managed to keep my kids healthy and safe. And they um, had kind of a seamless 
a seamless spring, but really, I think I didn't realize the long-term effects that that had on, I mean, I, I think a lot of people were in my position, right? And you just did what you had to do. But the way that affected me, I mean, just the exhaustion, I think I only realized in this current spring semester how exhausting it was. I taught, last semester, I taught four days a week, three different preps, all online. My kids were home a lot. Now, and I didn't sleep. I mean, I just got up at crazy hours to do work. And I'm not doing that anymore because it's not sustainable. And I think that there are a lot of people who have discovered that, that, that maybe that's why I cut out the theory. It just wasn't sustainable to keep going at that level of intensity. And I think I recognize that if I felt like that, that other people have probably felt like that too. Um, I also think I went from a place, I mean, there are pictures of our first days of homeschooling where we did crazy projects with the kids. I mean, uh, my partner made wooden cars with them and no, we don't do that anymore. It's not kind of a Pinterest-y, I get my kids outside every day. That is the rule. We eat meals every day. I think I have experienced a lot of, um, of roller coaster emotions about the world around us and how our support systems have just failed us. All of that created more and more anxiety. Our school has 76% of kids at the beginning of the year chose hybrid learning. And so that just meant fewer days in school. So it's great that it's a school that people trust and want to be in, but we closed all the time. You get a call at six in the morning that school is closed. It's not like you have a week's notice and you can get a sitter. You can't so call at 6 a.m. and find a babysitter for 6.30 a.m. No, no. So everything was kind of ad hoc and some summer camps appeared over the summer, but really until like now, there has been no structured way to get your kids taken care of. It's been like a patchwork. And so it's been us. And I think that's most people's experience. In this whole process, I feel like I've done a lot of reading about parents and people say, oh, we're really talking about the elementary age kids. And I have read so much about how much care these middle school and high school and we talk, we're with college students, they need care. But there's so much energy and attention that gets spent caring for these children as their lives were interrupted. Don't dismiss the care that we need to give to people, to all people, right? And the amount of time we've all spent kind of thinking about how our kids feel right now. I feel like in a normal world, from where I stand, I have sent my kids out into the world to have relationships with other people who care for them, whether those are teachers or friends or after school. So much of that has been removed. You know, I chose a community that I felt like would... Uh, provide so much of that care and that community is available at best a third of the time. When you think for yourself or when you're talking with the caregiver advocacy group, what are the things at the kind of university level that you think will be most important to change or most helpful to change? So one thing I'll say is that the, the caregivers advocacy group is made up of faculty and we have a very narrow uh, perspective and we acknowledge that. And I think that I've heard from staff, they have similar concerns and then different sets of concerns. And I think uh, this whole, and this issue has kind of brought to light the fact that other people might have different needs. And, and I think we've kind of decided, this is what we can do, that we have a limit. This doesn't address all of the issues. HR has been really great at hearing us and trying to make changes. Some things just aren't going to happen. We wanted there to be a fund that was in our initial statement 
that we wanted there to be a fund, an emergency child care fund. And some universities have been able to pull that off. And whether there are tax structure limitations or funding limitations, that just hasn't happened. And I, I don't think it can happen right now in a meaningful time period. We're nearing the end of when that money would be useful. One of our kind of more simple asks that I hope gets implemented is for there to be a website where students and staff and faculty can find each other for childcare or tutoring even, right? Um, like a bulletin board, a virtual bulletin board. And so uh, last I heard HR was kind of exploring the legal implications for that. But there are other universities that have this in informal or formal ways, but just to be able to find somebody on campus on a day that your kid doesn't have school who can watch your kid and go and play soccer on the green or go take a walk in Central Park would be really helpful. And everybody that I've talked to has said, oh my gosh, if that had existed, that would be so helpful. Or, you know, there are Fordham students in my neighborhood who will never be my student. Maybe they're graduate students, right? There's no reason for us to have a conflict of interest. They come from Fordham, thereby kind of getting them over the first hurdle of babysitting. So that's, that's a really simple ask. It seems to me that many of the people involved in making decisions that would have a positive effect on the faculty work-life balance are not faculty and maybe don't have real good insights into what the work of faculty really is. Could you talk a little bit about what is it that a faculty member does in a typical day that is inhibited by their childcare responsibilities? You hit the nail on the head that, so I will say the HR team has been so helpful and they've been really responsive, but you're right, Steve, they don't always know. Um, and so some of their suggestions like about sick days and how you would have a pool of people who could teach your class. And when I said, that's not actually an issue for me, nobody can teach my class. I was hired to teach my thing. And if I'm not available, I'm just going to find a workaround. I'm going to teach a different a different, a different day, a different assignment. Everybody will watch a movie. We'll make it up some other way. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that bears talking about a little bit more, right? Because it's not the case that what we do is the same semester to semester, mm. section to section. There's no, even a common syllabus isn't translatable like that. So sick days don't work, right? And you can't reschedule a class. Everyone in our in our classes, faculty and students, have organized their lives around meeting on Tuesdays and Fridays at 10. So it doesn't work to change it to 1115 just this once. It's yeah. impossible. It's been fruitful to explain some of those things that we, we assume, right? We've spent a lot of time in our silos. And we don't talk to each other all that much about the work that we do. It's just kind of assumed. So absolutely. So, so I would say to answer your question, Steve, there's some of that work that is um, kind of particular to the faculty, but it is impossible to sit down and read or write when you have children at home in Zoom classes. You've got somebody like taking a gym class in their room and they're bouncing up and down and the pains in the glass are shaking. And then you have somebody like in music class with their recorder out playing recorder and you have it's cacophonous. And I think most of us have made teaching the priority because we notice that our we know that our students need that. I feel that and advising comes second. And some of this service work around caregiving was like right up there for me with teaching and advising. 
And, and research just, I mean, I, I think everybody experienced that. It has been hard to think. It has been hard to find the space and the time to think, but also what I was saying about the anxiety. It's just been hard to find any, I don't think it's particular to having small children at home. I think it's been hard to find any of the personal mindset to think. And so that's what has made parts of our job so hard. Um, and then the scheduling, right? Like my kids come home, there's no after school anymore. My kids come home at 2.30. I, I used to pick them up at six and we would roll in the door, have dinner in bed and it would be done. And now I'm with them from 2.30 on. And that's its own set of challenges too. The thing about reading a new text in order to wrap your mind around it, let's not even talk about serious research, archival research, the kind of research that I know you do often in the summers, you know, but just the way that my research unfolds sometimes is I have a short story or a novel by someone and then I get interested in it and I want to read another text by them, right? And the concentration it takes to read something that you've never read before, assess it. Should I replace it? Should I expand this unit to do more of this person? You can't do that when you're stressed out. You can't do that when when the one hour that you might have been able to find peace turns out to be your son's gym class, right? It's not, it doesn't happen. No, that's the thing I miss the most. And that is the hardest to get, to get back. What do you think would be the right thing for the university to do in terms of recognizing that fact that there are these 15 months, 24 months of kind of vanished research work? We can't get the time back, right? That's a really hard question. I, you know, there was this article that came out in the fall in the New York Times that talked about how what is happening now, the research deficits people are experiencing now are going to result in, we're going to see them five, six, 10 years down the line, right? Whether that means people haven't been promoted or what the upper levels of a university, right? Who's dean, who's department chair. And so I do think that um, the university has to look seriously at that. If it's committed to equity, we all know women bear the brunt of some of these caregiving tasks. And that, and so what is that going to look like in our university that has said it's so committed to diversity and equity uh, in 10 years? I'm pretty confident that there's going to be a task force that is going to look at this and come up with some proposals to make it more equitable. But I don't, I don't know what that would look like. I don't know if people would, uh, if they, they would entertain additional research leave time for some people who have been impacted or, you know, my department at one point tried to have a service sabbatical, right, where certain people were just not supposed to be tapped to do service in a particular semester. Oh, um, that's an interesting idea. I like that. So you yeah. do your teaching load, but you just are not doing committee. You don't have to go to department meetings. You don't, you just say no to all of your service requirements for that semester. And it's a writing semester for you. We tried it on a lottery basis and it, it was complicated. Uh, but I have a smaller department. But if it were mandated by the university, maybe that would work. You know, I think there are some creative ideas out there. It's We did a lot of reading in the fall about what different universities were doing in the immediate to address the situation. And that moment has really passed for us. Really, we have to go back to the drawing board and see what other people are doing in the long term and, and come up with creative solutions that would work for our university. And then whether or not they're taken up is a, is a different thing. But I, I think it's in the university's interest to think about how to help support people who have really seen losses to their research 
uh, productivity right now. The interruption to our children's education and our students' education means that probably for the rest of our careers, we will be teaching students who have experienced a severe and traumatic educational interruption. And we're going to be learning a lot about if your education was interrupted in high school, these were the effects, right? If your education was interrupted in kindergarten, these were the effects, right? But for the next, say, 12 to 15 years, every single student who comes through Fordham is going to have had 15 months at a minimum of severely interrupted education. Yeah, I'm wondering if, if maybe the response on the the institutional side is to be more empathetic in our teaching. The way mm -hmm. we've responded individually, mm -hmm. if there's some way to institutionalize that empathy and what, what would that look like? Well, I also think it highlights equity issues because private school education was not interrupted, right? It was interrupted in the spring when the pandemic started, but most of those kids across the country have been in person at least for three to four days a week with a kind of... Um, robust extracurricular world since September. And that's not the case for the rest of the kids in the country. Right. Um, at right, or compared to other, like Europe has been open, schools have been open, countries shut down, Spain was pretty much shut down, but schools have been open. I hope we don't lose the empathy too. I think that, you know, of all of the very few positives of this experience, it is seeing, it, it's, it's seeing each other's faces in different ways. I mean, my kids pop into my classes, there's nothing I can do about it anymore. And um, it humanizes the situation. And, and I would say the same for my students. I mean, I have students who are sitting in all different kinds of spaces. Most of them have their cameras on. And I, I think that that is because they feel comfortable that this is a a space where they can kind of be honest about what their life looks like. But I hope that doesn't go away as the visual goes away. One of the fictions of being in a classroom was a fiction of equity that did, never existed. So there was, you know, 35 people in jeans and t-shirts and it often was hard, impossible, never happened that you perceived the difference between you know, someone who was working four jobs and had a, a, a chronically ill parent and someone who was going home to a luxury apartment and had right. never to work a job outside, right? And their homework assignments are the same. When I think about empathy and equity, it's confusing to me what the better way is, right? Because sometimes when we have a lot of details about someone's private life, we start expecting differently of them and in damaging ways rather than helpful ways. I mean, right. it's a really challenging balance to strike between, you know, you have a syllabus, you set expectations and you want students to meet those expectations, but also saying, if you can't meet these expectations, we need to have a conversation. I think there's so much going on. First of all, I think that faculty tend to be more strict as they're younger. I felt like I had to be very strict as a young female professor. There was no other way for me to be in that room. And that has changed. But I think the times have also changed, right? We're, we're kind of surrounded by more awareness of, of some of these issues.
But I started talking about it in my classes when I would talk about academic integrity and say, I, I started saying at the beginning of the semester, if you're thinking about plagiarizing, then you need to send me an email because clearly you're really stressed about this assignment and either you don't have enough time or you don't understand it and we need to have a conversation. But if you plagiarize, you're gonna get a zero. Right. Right, so let's have the conversation before you go down that road. That attitude for me has been expanded into like, well, if you can't really make the due date, can you let me know? It's okay. really interesting what you're saying about where a faculty member is in her career and thinking about what agency they have to make fun wholesale changes to policies that they feel mm -hmm. exist outside of their, you know, their own particular context. In mm -hmm. working mm -hmm. with Anne in these workshops, we get a lot of that, like, can I do that? Can I, maybe part of that is, you know, culture, lack of experience, messaging they're getting, worried about their, you know, everybody can't get an A, that means I'm not doing a good job. Real countervailing forces working against an empathetic an innovative approach to teaching and learning. I was talking to a fully promoted senior colleague yesterday who said to me, maybe I'm exhausted. She said, I'm exhausted. I'm totally exhausted. And I'm just wondering, I don't even know how I'm going to get through everything I have to do. And I'm wondering about making the final exam optional. And I said, why don't you make the final exam optional? And she said, Really? I said, well, why not? I said, you know, if someone's already got the grade, if already earned the grade that they earned and they don't need to bump their grade up, maybe just tell them, you know, here's where you are right now and you can stay there. Right. Or if you want to move up, take the exam. I mean, we went back and forth. It was like a comedy routine. I've had really good responses to, I have some assignments where if you hand it in, you get an A. I have that in my novel class. They're like uh, re reaction papers, right? If you hand it in, you get an A, but you also get the, you get my comments on these papers, which will help you see how I'm going to grade your final paper, right? I'm going to tell you what's wrong with it grammatically, but also like how I think you could engage differently with a text that might be more useful. And then that's going to be helpful for you for your final paper. But you've now gotten three A's in a row because you just handed it in. That's great, right? What's I the think downside? it's helpful for them. We can all watch powerful documentary series on about modern Spain and feel really smart about it. But without sitting down to write a couple paragraphs, it's not going to get in our heads. We write a couple paragraphs, all of a sudden you've moved from, you know, consuming information to actually learning stuff. Yeah. I want to and hold on to that idea, Anne, about conceptualizing the final exam is that it cannot lower your grade. It can only improve your grade. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's really sort of, I've never really thought about it in those terms before, but that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So if you, you have mm -hmm. a C and you take the final and you score above a C, then you've improved your grade. But if you're a C student and you get a D, it won't do anything. I won't hold it against mm -hmm. you. I like that. And it does seem like given the amount of stress and anxiety that surrounds finals, like, the practice of going into a final exam with a B minus and coming out with a C in the class. What, because yeah. of something that happened in 90 minutes, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold water in terms of what learning is. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, uh, you were talking about, um, kind of 
what students bring to the classroom. I forget the, the way in which you stated it, but one of the things that I do in my community engaged learning classes, you know, they're about Spanish speakers in New York City is I have students write their own family's story of migration where they come from. And but I encourage them to think about not just the story of how did your family get to the US, but how does your family celebrate its culture? And so for students who are more recent immigrants, the population of students that is more at risk to do poorly in class because they have more pressures put on them from outside of class, they have a moment to, to kind of explain where they come from and to celebrate that in writing. And there are opportunities that they want for them to talk about it in class. And that's supposed to bring up their grade, right? Just having established that connection and having had a moment to, to celebrate their own life out loud or in writing with a with their faculty member is, is I think there are studies that say this helps them do better. Yes, absolutely. Because you feel seen, you feel recognized as a human. And that's part of what you need in order to feel safe enough to learn. Carrie, one of the questions that we love to ask people when we talk to them is to tell us about a teacher who was really important to you. And we use the word teacher because really want to open it out to anything from, you know, a dissertation advisor and mentor to uh, someone that you loved in kindergarten. Um, so just tell us a story of a teacher who is important to you. I have to pick. Um... So I will go with uh, uh, a teacher that I think I brought up in the the session, uh, the pedagogy session you guys did on on reflection um, a few weeks ago. I had this teacher when I was in graduate school, this professor who was a visiting professor, and she was so elegant. She was, I mean, she just um, she spoke elegantly. She was Argentine, and she had this beautiful way of articulating and. She was also, I mean, Argentines are famously stylish. And so she was always very stylish. But what I really felt like she did was listen to us and be able to turn anything that anyone said into something smart, right? So she like her, and, and sometimes that people didn't say the smartest things, but she really listened and found the one kernel there that you could turn around and be like, that is so interesting. And, and helped the student see what was really smart about what they said. And so, I don't know, I don't, I, it's something that I have not been able to perfect because it takes so much attention and so much ability to plug into what other people are saying. When you're thinking like, what am I gonna do next? For me, it's really hard to, to always listen when I'm nervous about what's gonna happen next after this question. And she was so good at turning off, or at least apparently turning off the what am I gonna do next to really hear the students. And I think that's valuable. Carrie, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you wanted to make sure that we talked about? That in all of the caregiver conversations, one thing that has become clear is that the pandemic really revealed that there are some problems in our society, but particularly in our university that need to be addressed and that the idea that we are whole people, that we are not just, but that we come to the job with lives, that that should be recognized in normal times too. This isn't just a COVID thing. This is who we are, right? Maybe this idea of cure personnel that we try to hold ourselves to as teaching faculty 
needs to be brought to us as well as the university understands who we are and what we're coming to work with every day. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.